Speaking of David, it says in 1 Samuel 18, 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that's the son of Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, took David that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. Now remember, David's a teenager. He's never been in the military, but the hand of God so strongly upon him even Saul can't deny it. He says, you're going to be over all of my soldiers. That's what we call favor. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Verse 9 is kind of ominous. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day. A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him, or before them. So, you've got two lives moving in the opposite direction. And one of the things that you're just going to have to get comfortable with in the life of David is that God is God and gets to do what he wants. And he doesn't have to ask permission. He doesn't need to check with a committee. He doesn't have to bow down to a Western 21st century um, ideal of what spirituality should look like. God is God. He sits upon his throne and does whatever he wants. And so when God wants to bring King Saul down, God doesn't have to, you know, take a vote. When God wants to exalt King David, God doesn't have to check with everybody and ask if that's okay with them because he wants to make sure the, the majority consensus is that it's a good idea. And so when we see this, we have to recognize something that's true, not only about God in 1 Samuel 18, but God in your life and my life. We want, we think we want a fair God. I promise you something. You do not want God to be fair with you. Because if God is fair with me, I'll just speak for me. If God is fair with me, I am in big trouble. Because fair means I get what I deserve. And I don't want that, and you don't want that. 
And sometimes when God in his sovereign choice of exalting one and uh, demoting another, sometimes it doesn't sit right with us because, again, we live in the everybody gets a trophy generation. And God never, <laughs> God never affirmed that kind of philosophy for life. And so I want to be very clear here. God Almighty is bringing down King Saul. And God Almighty has just sovereignly chosen young David, brought him out of the sheepfold, told him he's going to be the king, anointed him through the prophet Samuel, and David is now inching his way just by the providence of God. David's not trying to do anything proactively except honor the Lord. And as he honors the Lord, God says, this is why he's a man after my own heart. And as he lives his life and honor the Lord, David keeps getting promoted and promoted and promoted. Saul has made the exact opposite decisions, and what Saul is experiencing is that, that bitter taste of reaping what you have sown. Now, I do believe this. Uh, Saul made his bed and slept in it with a few bad decisions, and there was nothing he can do. I believe that you and I, under the blood of Jesus Christ, no matter what we've done in our past, even uh, prior to being saved or subsequent to being saved, I do believe there is restoring and intentionally powerful grace that is available for all of us. So the last thing I want you to do is to leave here tonight saying, the curse of Saul is on my life. That is not the message. Because even if the curse of Saul was ever on your life, the grace of God through Jesus Christ is stronger than any curse that you might have earned in former days. And so rest boldly and bravely in the grace that is given to us through Jesus Christ. But let's do this. Let's learn very practically that we don't want to live like Saul because nothing good comes from it. And so let's look at these verses. Uh, first of all, in the first seven verses, we've got what I call the undeniable rise of David. This is a repeated theme in David's early life. He's just an undeniable rising from obscurity, this young shepherd boy, and this is yet another season where we're seeing it. First of all, some things are happening. Remember, David killed Goliath. He's the new military hero in the nation. And so the first five verses of 1 Samuel 18 are summing up David's next several years. And so this is the way they're described. First of all, David was honored by Jonathan. Jonathan is the physical heir to the throne. He is King Saul's firstborn son. He should be the king, but his dad has forfeited the kingly line. The Bible says that Jonathan made a covenant with David. Why? Because he loved him as his own soul. And as a prophetic act almost, he strips himself of the robe, the royal robe that was on him, and he gives it to David. He gives David his armor. He gives David his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, we all know that in recent years, there's been some absurd teachings about Jonathan David. Jonathan David, Jonathan and David, they love each other. And of course, because of an aggressive agenda in our culture, uh, people want to seize that and they want to make it homosexual. And there's absolutely nothing in Scripture that would indicate it. It says Saul loved David. It says Judah and Israel loved David. It says Michael loved David. And David is beloved. And when it speaks of David's love and Jonathan's love for David, there's no sexual connotation in it. Quite frankly, it's a little bit insulting to men, if I can say this, that our culture doesn't believe a man can love a man without it being deviant. And I want to tell you... Um, there is something 
to a brotherhood. Every now and then, God will pair you and unite you with a man, as a man, will unite you with a man, and it is an entirely distinct relationship from what you would have with your wife or, or, or a girlfriend. It's, it's, it's a completely different realm, but it is a strong love, and that's why David would say later on to Jonathan that their love for each other surpassed that of women. Now, I just want to get that clear so that nobody gets triggered by this and starts thinking, see, it's in the Bible. It's not a homosexual love. It's just a brotherhood. And it happens instantaneously, instantaneously, and it begins in the heart of Jonathan who says, this is a man of honor. Jonathan had lived under his daddy Saul for long enough, and he knew what a man of dishonor was like. And when David steps onto the scene, it's probably at this point, you know, 16, 17 years old, Jonathan, who is older than David, says in some, some kind of way, seems to know that the royal robes that he's wearing belong to David because David would be the heir to the throne. As a matter of fact, this so bothered Saul that we'll see in a later chapter that Saul considered it a borderline treasonous act by Jonathan for Jonathan to give him the royal robes, the, the, the coat of armor, and then the sword and his bow and his belt. But all this is is God giving David favor to a guy who in the flesh should have been jealous of David should have wanted to exterminate David because after all, if God is elevating David, that means Jonathan will never be the king. But Jonathan has a noble character and he recognizes the hand of God on David and Jonathan's able to do what his daddy Saul wouldn't be able to do, which is what? Honor the person upon whom God has placed his hand. And so we go a little bit further. David was not only honored by Jonathan, but he was favored by God in verse 5. Look, David now is in, he's, he's conscripted into the military and he's now a high-ranking official in the military, and David goes out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. But what, was, what was interesting is at the beginning of David and Saul's relationship, and we'll see it fall apart right here, at the beginning, Saul greatly loved David. It actually says that in, in, in uh, these chapters says, Saul greatly loved David. He saw something on David that was an anointing and an attractive anointing. And he's like, oh, this man has something. And so Saul, he may be, he may be unspiritual, but he's not, he's not foolish when it comes to warfare. He says, the man that killed Goliath and, and, and just imparted courage to the whole army, I'm going to put him over the whole army. So he puts him all over all of the trained men of war. And the Bible says, anywhere that Saul sent David, don't miss that, by the way. David's the anointed king. He's the one whom God has chosen to be the king, but David is still, without a word of complaint, serving the man that's in his way. We've got to learn from that, friends. You talk about character and nobility. Listen, the depth of our spirituality is often revealed in how we treat those who offer us nothing. And Saul had nothing to offer David, and David did not... He did not call down fire. He didn't come to Saul and say, by the way, I've been anointed and you need to pack your bags and go. David just kept serving the one who would eventually prove to be David's enemy. And God just kept favoring David. Everywhere he went, he just won. He won every single battle and everybody knew it. And Saul's servants and soldiers saw that David had the touch of God and so did all of the people in Judah and Israel. As a matter of fact, we see this in verses 6 and 7. So this is now bringing us into real time. And this is as David's coming back from killing Goliath. Look what happens. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, now watch this, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And so, just pause here for a second. Leave those verses up on the screen. So the custom was when the nation gained a victory, the king got all the glory. Now, if you'll remember with me the facts, the facts were Saul was in his tent for 40 days with his knees knocking, acting like a spineless, faithless leader of Israel. And so he didn't do anything to contribute to the victory at all. And yet the custom of the day is, no matter who actually um, physically destroyed the enemy, all the glory goes to the king. And so the women are coming out of the cities as David and Saul and the soldiers are coming back in. The women are coming out of the cities. They're celebrating. They're dancing. They've got their little uh, whatever's on their fingers, their little tambourines, and they're they're, they're, they're celebrating this. But here's where things go sideways. Verse 7, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And the lyrics got everybody jacked up. Saul has struck down his thousands. Saul? Don't think so. I don't think he actually did that. David, his ten thousands. You'd think something as innocuous as this, as just innocent as this. Everybody's celebrating because it's a moment of victory. The Philistines are defeated. Their nine-and-a-half-foot-tall soldier just got his head chopped off after David killed him with a sling and a stone. It's just a time to celebrate. And as the women come out, they're recognizing that Saul's awesome. They've got to say that. He's the king. Saul's awesome, but David's ten times as awesome. And buddy, that's where everything turns. Listen, it's, it's one moment of time. It's just a moment in time in the life of Saul and he let his heart get away from him as we're about to see. Let me, before I go there, let me just ask you a question. How are you doing in the arena of celebrating the blessing that's falling on the other person when it's not falling on you? How's your heart? How do we do when the thing we've been fasting and praying for and not getting breakthrough in is just easily finding this person that seems to be bumbling along their way in the Christian life. It is one of the tests of our spiritual character in how we respond when God's hand is on somebody else and we're not necessarily sensing it resting on us. And unfortunately for Saul, he's going to act consistently with his proven character at this point. He's going to show that he has no room for joy in his heart for the blessing and the glory going to somebody else. And so let's look at that. As David is undeniably rising, we're going to now see the unholy downfall of King Saul. This is it, guys, listen. This is where his heart reaches the point of no return and not in a good way. And so we see him giving himself, in verse number 8 at the beginning, to very clear envy and paranoia. So remember the song, Saul struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands, boom, 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 and everybody goes in the uproar. And Saul is inwardly, his smile, Saul has killed his thousands. Saul's big and tall and handsome, and he's smiling. And then the second part of that first stanza just grips him in his face. The blood drums out of his face. His jaw locks. He recognizes that they're giving David more glory. And so the Bible says Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. 
And in case you think I'm making it up, here we go right here. He said, this is why he's angry, this is why he's displeased. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And look at his conclusion. And what more can he have but the whole kingdom? Now, let me remind you something. Saul knew that he was a lame duck king. He knew that God had stripped him of power. That had been told him in chapter 13, verse 14. And then it had been told him again in chapter 15, verse 28. There was actually a couple of other times where through Samuel, God said to Saul, you have forfeited your anointing. You have forfeited your dominion. You have forfeited your reign because you've hardened your heart. You feared the opinions of the people. That was the number one thing that brought Saul down. He was afraid of what people would think and say about him. And so when he sees the thing that he wants for himself, people speaking well of him, but now they're speaking well of David, and even more so of David, and immediately he goes dark. Inwardly, he's seized with anger and envy, and he's actually, his words are here, and he's acting in paranoia. What he didn't know about David is there was not a more loyal man to him in the entire kingdom. David's a young boy, and he's going to prove over the next two decades. It would be 20 years before David would eventually get the, the throne, the, the uh, United Kingdom's throne, or the, not the United Kingdom, but the kingdom united and, and sit on that throne. And, and it would take 20 years, and for most of those 20 years, David's on the run from Saul. This begins an almost 20-year manhunt from Saul against David. It's coming in the next couple of messages. And so look at what the Bible says. The Bible says that Saul so filled with anger and displeasure that his conclusion is, this guy is a threat to me. This guy is a threat. My position he's going to take. My glory he's going to take. My rule he's going to take. Remember what Samuel told Saul? Samuel told Saul uh, sometime before, he said, the Lord has found a neighbor of yours that is better than you. That was what Saul received from Samuel, that God had chosen a neighbor of Saul's, somebody in the kingdom, who was better than Saul to be the next king. And now Saul's getting the evidence via a song sung spontaneously by the celebratory women. And what does that song say? It says this, David's better than Saul. Says Saul's got his thousand, but David, he's something else. He's got his ten thousands. And envy comes to life in Saul, and it never leaves him. Matter of fact, the next verse shows us that he begins to live from that point forward in insecurity, and he's preoccupied with David. It says Saul eyed David from that day on. It's a very interesting Hebrew phrase, but it, from that we, we can just take the very plain meaning that Saul was constantly preoccupied with little David from that point forward. As a matter of fact, for the rest of Saul's life, his number one obsession was David. Saul, because he had no interest in the glory of God, was consumed with Saul's own need for glory, and David had more glory. And so Saul viewed David as an opponent, as a threat, and somebody that had to be exterminated. And from that day forward, the Bible says, until the day he died, Saul was watching David. It literally became his obsession. 
Now, this is an extreme case, but let me tell you, apart from us humbling ourselves in the presence of the Lord, and apart from the, the grace of God working on our behalf, if we allow envy to come and set up house in our heart, you will go there. Envy is not content to remain small. It's like yeast. It's going to grow and grow. I remember when we were little, my grandmother, who was a southern girl from Mississippi, and now as my grandmother, her, the, we, the only reason I remember really wanting to go to her house when I was about eight or nine was because she made these homemade yeast rolls. And literally, I'm thinking about them now and wishing I could have about 10 of them, but they, I remember watching her with the yeast and watching how that thing, and she would put them in there, and how that thing would just grow. And I remember being fascinated by that as a kid, and when I think of how just that thing just grows and expands, I think that's exactly what happens with envy in our heart if we don't humble ourselves. Because all of a sudden, the person that we're envious of, or the person that we're threatened by, or the person who has what we wish we had, and we are upset that they have it, and we don't have it, immediately what that, that envy does, if we don't, we, we don't extract it, it takes over, and suddenly we find ourselves almost unable to control our mind from going to that person and wanting what they have. And it may not just be one person, it might be in general. And so when we think about this, this is what's beginning to happen in Saul's life. And I want to tell you, it's way more than just an emotional problem or a personality issue. Because we're going to find out it becomes an open door for demonic activity. This is where I want us to get our attention. And I'm hoping we have faith to at least acknowledge it's a possibility. Matter of fact, it's the next verse. So Saul goes from being envy, envious and paranoid to insecure and preoccupied with David and now he is going to, we're going to see him as being demonized and completely deceived. So watch how quickly it happens. The next day. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house. While David was playing the lyre, it's just a, just think of an ancient small guitar. As David did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand. Now watch this. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. We're going to break this down. So Saul gives way to envy, jealousy, and insecurity, and that seed gets in him, and he gives himself to it. He begins to cooperate with this nasty thing going on in his heart. And it didn't take a week. It didn't take a month. It didn't take six months or a year. When he laid down that night, he was thinking about David. And as he slept, the seed of envy so took over his heart that when he woke up and began the next day, he was wide open for a demonic assault on himself. We don't think about that. We don't think about how magnetizing bitterness and envy is to the demonic realm. We just don't think about it. We think about it as, we, our tendency, by the way, is to justify ourselves when we find ourselves envying or jealous and we, we try any way we can to, to figure out why that person isn't as awesome as everybody thinks they are and 
why do they think they're more awesome than us and, and, and why are they being blessed and why is God touching them? So we find ourselves trying to tear down that person in our own mind so that we'll feel built up in our minds about ourselves. And when, when that process starts going on, friends, I'm telling you, demons are like elbowing each other in the ribs. They're saying, you seeing what I'm seeing? And they're like, oh yeah, we've seen it before and other people we're seeing it in her right now. Let's get on this thing and boom. We like to think that that's, it's, it's two completely disassociated things. I'm telling you it isn't. That when we allow such entrenched relational negativity, envy, insecurity, bitterness, anger, all of that stuff, when we allow it to get in our hearts, it is a fertile garden for the enemy to plant whatever he wants. And that's what's going to happen to Saul. By the way, notice this. God dispatched the demon. How's that going to settle with your theology? I I want us to remember something. Somebody actually asked me this today. It was a great question. It was, uh, I can't remember who asked me, but we were talking about it today. God is in absolute authority over the demonic realm. He doesn't approve of them, but he will use them if he needs to. He he literally, and by, by the way, he's not convincing. It, it was you. It was my daughter. It was at lunch today. It just takes me a minute, man. And, and so the, the demonic realm is still under the complete authority of God. It's not like they're going to get over on the Almighty. And so literally... God allows the demon to do what the demon would love to do, which is what? Steal, kill, and destroy. To torment a human being. And so when God gives permission, says, Saul's all yours, that demon goes straight into him. And Saul, from that point forward, lives a maniacal, demonized, oppressed, or possessed life. And to the extent that in 24 hours when he sees David, the hero of the nation, and notice what David's doing. Do you know what David's doing in the moment? David's actually back in that servant role again. David's got a guitar in his hand playing for the glory of God and the good of Saul. Saul's got a spear in his hand trying to satisfy his own glory and kill David. You can't see two men that are more contrasted in in the Old Testament than these two men. And so Saul literally, just sitting there, David's over there playing, you know, one of his own probably worship songs that he wrote. And, And Saul out of nowhere just stands up, takes his spear and throws it at David, not to scare him, to kill him. I I don't want to overstate this, but I, I don't want to understate it either. Um, envy is closely associated with the spirit of death. Envy, unresolved anger, and bitterness is literally the atmosphere of death. And when we operate in that, within us things die, and when it comes out from us, things die. And it's kind of personified here in Saul's a desire to pin David to the wall. So this is going to be repeated over and over again over the next several chapters, and I'm not going to avoid it. I think it's a very important and practical part of the story of David that his life as one who was seeking the glory of God and trying to honor Saul, but what was he met with? He was met with rejection, 
a murderous intent from the man that he was serving and trying to honor. Listen, David was doing everything rightly. Bad things were happening to him. Some of you can step into that position for a moment and recognize that when you were doing all the right things and trying your best and operating in sincerity and and trying to figure out how to love a hard case and and seeking to humble yourself over and over and over again and, and you were only met with further bitterness and further rejection or further abuse or further, further nasty coming off of them. I, I want to tell you there's grace from God for you, but you weren't wrestling against flesh and blood. I'm not saying that that person was necessarily demonized, but I'm also not telling you you shouldn't consider whether or not they were. And so David was dealing with a demonized man with the greatest authority in the land, and now David had a permanent bullseye on his chest because Saul had given his heart over to envy. Now, what's beautiful is the remainder of our verses because how many of you know that God's not intimidated by the souls in our lives? And God's plan is not contingent upon Saul getting with the program because God's got a plan for Saul and Saul had already hardened his heart and he's reprobate. I mean, he is absolutely reprobate. You'll see him throughout the story going in and out of moments of lucidity where he's seeing things God's way and he's repenting before David and and two, two minutes later he's saying, where is he? I want to kill him again. That's the nature of a demonized soul that part of the torment is they have moments where they can, they, can, they can see what they're doing is wrong and they're struggling with it, but those moments are then swallowed back up by the darkness that they've given their hearts to. Man, I'm feeling so strongly on this right now. Let me just take a, a, a brief segue. Friends, what we open up ourselves to, what we allow access into our lives, it flavors our soul. And we are either inviting the activity of heaven, the activity of God. We are either inviting that by the decisions we make, the activities we engage in, the things that we give our minds to. We're either inviting and welcoming God the Spirit to come and flavor us with heaven and, and bring us all of the fruit of the Spirit and make them produced in our lives. We are actively participating and cooperating with either that or... We are opening ourselves up to the forces of darkness. Now, what's interesting is all you have to do in order to open yourself up to the forces of darkness, all you've got to do is live your life in spiritual neutral. You don't have to go out and and do a thousand heinous things because the nature, our nature is, is if we're not pressing into the Lord, there's still such an imprint on our flesh. Your flesh, listen, your flesh never gets sanctified. Your flesh will never be sanctified. Your flesh is only meant to be crucified. And when your flesh is crucified, the spirit and the flesh war against each other. And when your flesh dies, the spirit emerges. And the spirit becomes prominent in your life. But you never pretty up the flesh. The flesh is only meant to be crucified. And so often we, we, we think, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm not off doing all the terrible things that a lot of people do, but I'm also not really pursuing the Lord. I'm not letting the word get in me. I'm not worshiping. I'm not praying. I'm not denying myself uh, 
the things that maybe the culture is offering me. I'm just kind of in neutral, but at least I'm not out doing these things. I'm going to tell you, the devil loves neutral Christians because there's no resistance. Part of living your life in spiritual, uh, spiritual neutral is, is that you offer no resistance to the enemy. And so he gets to come in. Now, you, you, that can be taken a step further. It's, some people aren't living in neutral they're wide open. They're allowing things via entertainment. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and get a little old-fashioned sounding. That, 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 that music, that movies, that television, and entertainment, and conversation, and all of these heinous things that Jesus Christ gave his life for. And there are so many people that have no problem coming into a church and, and, and lifting up their hands in worship and, 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 and praise and, and going through the motions and then and having the day before and the next day coming, giving themselves to the things of darkness. And friends, I, listen, I, I just believe we're so close to the end of the age that the Lord is borderline pleading with us. And, and he's saying, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And if our, our, if our constant inclination is towards darkness, then I don't believe it's rocket science. It doesn't mean that we won't battle with certain temptations. It doesn't mean that there's not an onslaught coming against us. What it means is this, that we are waging a warfare against those things and we're refusing to live our lives in neutral. And Saul was somewhere between living in neutral and just fully giving himself over to the things of darkness. And so what happens is a spirit of death enters into him. And he becomes enraged and he seals, as it were, his fate and his, his doom. It's a long time coming. Man, it was a slow kill. For, for Saul, the enemy, it was a slow, slow kill. Um, and for David, it was a slow ascent. God took his time bringing David into um, his destiny. And as God was incrementally bringing David to his destiny, God was also incrementally removing the obstacles. A quick word, and then we're going to finish with David here. Don't get impatient with the way that the Lord is working in your life. He's actually brilliant, omnisciently so. He knows exactly what he's doing. Um, he, he, he's not kind of doing things on the fly. He knows exactly what he's doing with you, and his timetable is perfect. And for a lot of us, God's timetable is usually a little slower than we would wish. And it's because he's not a slave to the clock or the calendar. And he's actually operating outside of the realm of time, and he knows what he's doing. And let me just say this. While he's working for you, he's also working in all the other arenas that touch your life presently and will touch your life in the future. So he's got a God-sized job that he's doing, and it's not a surprise that sometimes we don't understand his ways. Because he's working on a million different levels. Now, don't make this up in the clouds. Make this for your situation right now. The reason why we operate constantly in a deficit of full understanding is because he already told us at the beginning, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are, I love you, but my thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. As a matter of fact, they're not just like a couple of feet apart. You're not almost there. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And that's not meant to crush us. It's actually meant to liberate us from the obsessive trying to figure out what he's doing all the time. 
You don't need faith if all you have is explanations from God. We don't need faith if he lines it all up ahead of time and says, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next 12 months of your life. On uh, October 31st, it'll be this. On November 1st, it'll be this. At 8 a.m., it'll be this. At midnight, it's going to be this. You don't need faith for that. And what the Lord doesn't want us doing is operating in this obsessive need to understand everything he's doing before he does it. And so some of you right now are, are exactly where you're supposed to be with the Lord, and it makes no sense. And his timing, you're just, you know, you're beat your head up against the wall saying whoa what are you doing and, and and if you listen he's just looking at you saying oh what am i doing i'm being god i'm gonna be god and you you said that you love me and you trust me and i i'm really giving you a chance to find out the depth of that because i'm not going to explain everything to you ahead of time but i want to tell you i really really love you and i'm always working for your good and so we have to get these uh, uh, occasional resets we're like oh okay yeah I'm not in charge, I'm not in charge, I'm not in charge. He doesn't need my advice. He's not asking my opinion. He's just being God, and he's being a good, good father, and I'm going to trust it. Um, some of you moms and dads in the room, you did this with your kids when they were small, and they didn't have the capacity to, to understand you. You didn't go home and unload everything that you're dealing with on them. You, you didn't tell them about all the, all the surprises and plannings and good stuff that you had stored up for them, and you, nor did you tell them all of the, for us, what would be challenges. They're not challenges to God, but they're challenges for us. We would never do that to our kids. It's a terrible parent that goes home and says to their child, you know what? Things are really, really difficult right now. I don't know if we're going to make it. Good night, sweetie. It's a terrible parent. And and one of the mercies of God is that he doesn't tell us ahead of a time what's coming down the pipe. And it gives us a chance just to abide in him daily. And so here's what David's going to do. David is going to operate in what I call the unstoppable intentions of God. I want to give you this. God's intentions for your life, if you are humbly submitting and following him, his intentions for your life are unstoppable. They're unstoppable. You're actually invincible until he's done with you. Yeah, I, I, that doesn't, I hope that doesn't sound cocky because I think it's theologically sound. It's like if he's sovereign and the boundaries of my life are appointed and I am in covenant with him through the blood of his son and he has pledged himself to me and I have submitted myself to him, I am invincible until his unstoppable intentions have come to their conclusion. That makes me feel good on a Wednesday night. I just kind of like that. Um, you could probably take that to extremes. That's not a call to be reckless and, and, and tempt the Lord your God, but it is a call to abide and rest and surrender more deeply. And so let's look and, 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 and see what David does. So remember, Saul throws the spear at David because he's going to kill him. And then verse 11 then says, but David ev evaded him twice. You know, I guess the first time somebody tries to pin you to the wall with a spear, you give them the benefit of the doubt? I don't know. The second time you're thinking, hmm, we may have a problem here. And so David would always operate with Saul in humility and even submissiveness, but he wasn't ignorant. You can be humble, you can be servant-hearted, you can be submissive, but don't ever check your brains at the door. Don't ever enter into ignorance. Don't ever become unwise. 
I, I love surrounding myself with positive people. Um, I live with some optimists. I'm, I'm, I'm the pessimist. I, I like to say realist, but compared to them, I'm, I'm the pessimist. But I'm not confused about human nature. And so, raise your hand. Come on, let's just get honest, because I don't want to confess my sins without giving you an opportunity to confess yours. <laughs> raise your hand if you're an optimist about people. Raise your hand. Raise both hands if you're a pessimist. Yeah. And somebody, right here, right here, Diane's like, yeah, I'm a realist. Well, I, I feel that way too. But you get around some optimists, they'll say, why are you so pessimistic, man? <laughs> I mean, the, the truth is, I've seen enough nasty off of people that I don't have any confidence in people. And I, I don't. I'm pleasantly surprised when people act humanly. Like, that when they're nice. I'm like, where did that come from? Is that... Is that... <laughs> Now that my sins are confessed, let me get back to the text. David is going to be humble and submissive to Saul, but he, he probably had his eyes on alert after that first spear, and that's why he was able to get away twice. He was, David's no fool. The Bible says that Saul was keeping his eye on David, but there's something in my gut that tells me David was probably keeping a watch on Saul, but with altogether different, different motives. One of the things that I, I learned from David's life is this. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, there's a man named Gamaliel. He's a Jewish leader in the Sanhedrin. And so he's a big shot in Jesus' day in Israel, after Jesus' day, in the day of the apostles. And so Peter and John are being brought up on charges of following Jesus. And they're about to get beaten, perhaps executed. And the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is, is deciding, what do we want to do with these men? And this guy named Gamaliel stands up. And this is the counsel he gives. I'm going to paraphrase it here. He says, gentlemen, we ought to be really careful what we do to these two guys. He said, do you remember that guy named Thutis? And then do you remember the other guy named Judas? Not, not Judas that betrayed Jesus, but a historical guy named Judas in Israel. And another guy named Thutis. And these guys started big insurrections. They started these rebellions. And both of those rebellions got brought down. And Gamaliel says this, he says, if these two guys are being sent from God, there's nothing we can do to defeat them. And if they're not sent of God, this whole thing, this Jesus movement will die on its own. It's the counsel of Gamaliel, who wasn't even a Christ follower, but it is sound counsel. And let me tell you, it's important that we learn this. Some of you are born to fight. You, you have bulldog blood in your veins. You, you will snarl at any threat. You're just born to bring on the war. I haven't had one all week. Come on. That's the way you're wired, and God wired you that way. But you know that at being one who's been wired that way for a while, you've, sought, you've probably fought some battles that God never intended you to fight. You probably got up in the face of somebody you were never meant to get up in their face. And when I, when I get the counsel of Gamaliel and I get it in my mind, I recognize, oh, there are some causes that I just need to take a step back and say, let's watch how this bad boy plays out. And that is what... Gamaliel told them to do, and of course, unfortunately for the Sanhedrin, it turns out that God was anointing the apostles, and the, the movement of Jesus continues to 2,000 years 
to the very day today we're still operating in that same flow but my point is this um david could have gotten obsessed with saul to the degree that saul was obsessed with david david could have at this juncture said oh no I've got to watch out for Saul. I've got to watch out for Saul. I've got to, my whole life is about Saul, Saul, Saul. But there was some component, at least at this juncture with David, where he's able to say, if this is of God, I'm a dead man anyway. But it's not a, if it's not of God, then God is going to take care of Saul. Let me just give you this that you already know, but maybe you haven't thought about it recently. The battle is the Lord's. Though he will assign you some responsibilities in every battle, there are some things that you just need to liberate yourself from, your heart, your mind, your anxieties, your worries, and there's some battles, some challenges that you just need to release to the Lord and say, Lord, you're going to have to defend my name. You're going to have to defend my cause. You're going to have to protect me. You're going to have to deliver me. You're going to have to give me endurance. I can't win this battle on my own. If this Saul-like thing is coming against me, if it's of you, Lord, then I'm just going to fall to it anyway. But I don't think it's of you. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to let you take care of business. Meanwhile, Lord, I'm going to focus on the thing that you've given me to do. And you liberate yourself from a fight that was never assigned to you. David was sober-minded. He evaded Saul twice, but David was also anointed. Look at verse number 12. So as Saul's keeping his eye on David, look at what Saul's starting to see. Saul was afraid of David. By the way, some of the biggest antagonists in your life, they're not all that tough. They're operating in fear. That's why they have to come off that way to you. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Why was Saul afraid of David? Because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So Saul is looking at David, and Saul knows David's the real thing, and Saul's a fake. That Saul has the anointing, excuse me, that David has the anointing, and that Saul has nothing but flesh. There's another verse in chapter number 14 that says of Saul, I never saw it before today, um, that says anytime Saul found, I think it's chapter 14, maybe verse 32, anytime Saul found a man of valor or strength, he attached that man to himself. So Saul's whole demeanor, this is, man, I'm feeling a little prophetic pulse on this. Keep your eye on leaders that always have to find the best people and bring them to themselves. That's a danger sign. My thing is this, I, I want to be surrounded by great people, but I want God around me and I want the great people to go to places where there are no great people. But beware of a leader who always has to take the cream of the crop and say, yeah, I want, you, I want to attach you to me. I want to attach you to me. And Saul always did that. And so Saul is recognizing there's nobody more anointed than David, and I, I don't have what he has. And so the Bible says that that produced a fear in Saul. Picture his heart. You got David on the upswing, Saul on the downswing, and Saul's heart is being described as insecure, paranoid, envious, fearful, and raged. That is a bad way to live. And it all started because he didn't like the lyrics of the song that the women were singing. He didn't get the top spot. I don't want to live my life in fear of making mistakes because we're going to make mistakes. 
But I don't want to go to the opposite end of that spectrum and be so cavalier and casual about how I'm living, presuming that God's going to bless me no matter what I do, what I say, what I think, or what I, what, how I operate with people. And I, I don't think Saul had a clue that when he let that song harden his heart, he had no clue that he was going to wake up the next day and the rest of his life would be tormented and demonized. But that's exactly what happened. And so we go to verse 13. I'm almost done. David just shows himself again as submissive. So look at verse 13. Saul was so afraid of David and his anointing that he removed David from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. I used to think that this was a promotion from David. I tend to think now it was, and I think it was a demotion. Because earlier we read that David was over all of the mighty men. And it doesn't make sense for Saul to promote David to greater glory when Saul is envious of David's glory. I actually think it was a demotion, and Saul puts David over a battalion of a thousand men that are going to be slugging it out in war with the Philistines. My guess is is that Saul was hoping, okay, I'm going to give him a thousand guys, I'm going to keep sending them into battle. One of these Philistines is going to kill David, and I won't have to worry about him anymore. That's my personal take on that. But what did David do? David just kept snapping off a salute. David just kept obeying the human authority that God had left over him. Friends, that's a powerful thought. Listen, this is not prophetic. This is reasonable. Some of you are more gifted than the person you work for. Some of you are more gifted and, and skilled and wise and spiritual than the person who has authority over you. Some of you can run circles around those that are positioned above you. And you know what the Lord wants you to do? He wants you to honor that person. Say, Jeff, they're not honorable. I get it. That's why it's a test. That's why it feels like being crucified. That's why it feels painful, maddening at times. But I want you to think about the one that lives inside of you and ask the question, did Jesus Christ ever submit to anything that had no authority over him? You remember what Paul wrote of Jesus? Jesus, who is life, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, in essence, and I don't mean this irreverently, Jesus, to complete the Father's will, snapped off a salute to death and submitted unto death. And he submitted as low as he could possibly go. And the response of God the Father was to exalt him as high as he could possibly go. And so David is is revealing here something that everybody in this room needs. We have to have the Holy Spirit to empower us, to give honor and to offer submission. And I'm, there's, listen, I, I need to qualify that by saying, You don't submit to the point where you place yourself or your loved ones in physical danger or physical harm. I'm not telling you to become a submissive doormat to an abuser. That is not what I'm saying. There are many other options than just becoming a punching bag for somebody. But what I'm saying is in the context of relationships and human authority, yes, you may be more qualified, but God's word is clear that we... Obey those that have the rule over us. And David is doing that long before Paul ever wrote that. 
David submitted to Saul as unto the Lord. Remember later on, we're going to find out that David had opportunities to kill Saul. He had encouragement to kill Saul. And David's own statement was, I am not about to lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed. David even verbally honored Saul. Saul's breathing out slaughter on David. And David is actually saying, the Lord has established him and anointed him and put them in, the, him, in that position of king. And my job is to honor the king. That's incredible to me. Is anybody else, is it just me? I mean, are you not like challenged by that? So whoever you're probably wrestling with in that context um, is not trying to pin you to the wall with a javelin, but they may be a pain in your rear. Is that allowed to be said in the pulpit? Okay. Oops. Um, if, if David can submit unto Saul, Surely you can go to work tomorrow and submit to the jerk that you work for. Surely, if things aren't exactly right in the home, uh, young people to parents, and I know it's not politically correct, but it's still biblically true that the order in the home is the husband to be the head of the home, and he is to express that headship in love and serving his wife. But sometimes the dude doesn't do that. And sometimes he's just negligent in his role as the leader and the lover. And it can be so tempting for the wife to say, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be the follower anymore. And I just want to call you a pause for a second, sister, and just say, do it as unto the Lord. The Lord will handle his negligence, but the Lord will reward your honor. God honors our honoring of others. And David is a living testimony in 1 Samuel 18 of that. And so verse number 14, David's still being elevated. The Bible goes on to say, David had success in all his undertakings. Why? The Lord was with him. That's what you need to wake up tomorrow convinced of. Not who's against you, but is the Lord with you? Not, well, not what your challenges are, but is the Lord with you? Is he for you? You ought to wake up knowing that tomorrow. And the Bible says when Saul saw that David had great success, <laughs> he stood in fearful awe of him. That literally Saul is like, oh, how much better is it going to get for this guy? But Saul is also aware enough to recognize it's not just David being awesome, it's God anointing David. So Saul wants to kill him in his, in his insane moments and tries to, but in his lucid moments when he's, he's seeing things as they are, he's like, oh, I hate this guy and he's anointed. I hate this dude and the power of God's on him. I hate him, but I want to be like him. I hate him because he's got what I forfeited. I hate him and I can't deal with looking at him, so I've got to kill him, but I shouldn't kill him because it's God on his life. And that's the torment of Saul. And it all came through Saul not guarding his heart from which come all the issues of life. And he let envy, envy, I mean, listen, that doesn't make our top 20 list. We, we want to obsess with all of, and listen, we should be, um, you know, repulsed by the moral filth in our culture. But friends, it's not just pornography that opens up a door to the enemy in our lives. It's not just gossip. It's not just covetousness. But operating with an envious heart towards another person and being deeply offended and angered and embittered 
because they have something that we don't have? And Satan says, yeah, let, let me fertilize that a little bit. And overnight for Saul, it became an, a point of no return. Nobody, not even Saul, could deny that God had exalted David to superiority in the land. So he hated David, and verse number 16 is where we'll end. But all Israel, all the tribes, and David's own tribe, Judah, they loved David. Why? The Bible sums it up this way. He went out and came in before them. That's just an old way of saying David was the man. And any time David was at the head of a battle, Israel could kick back and say, we got this. It's an awesome kind of leader to have when you've got a leader, got somebody in your midst that has that kind of anointing where you can just say, okay, we've got the right woman or the right man in the right place for this occasion. We're going to trust God. We've seen God operate through this person. Let's just see what the Lord will do. And that was the luxury that Israel had. Saul's on his way down. David's on his way up. God is not fair. God can promote you. And I'm going to tell you, he loves to do so. But some of that depends on our cooperation with them. And God's not fair. God can promote one, and he can demote one. And oftentimes that demotion occurs because of our lack of cooperation with his character and what he's doing. So it's a great opportunity for each of us to examine our hearts and say, Lord, search me and try me. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Purge me with hyssop. Make me whiter than snow. Lord, here's my heart. Fresh surrender tonight. We stand to your feet. Whew. Holy Spirit, just please right now. Begin to reveal to us anything that you'd like to remove from our hearts. Lord, we're so blessed. Teach us to rejoice when we see somebody that appears to be more blessed than us. We want to rejoice with those that rejoice. I pray you would bless the ones that are in this room powerfully lavishly let the oil from your hand drip off their lives make us walk in puddles of the touch of God and God if somebody's got a deeper puddle from you and a heavier anointing greater wealth more beauty a better personality a more broad audience we bring you any potential for envy and we ask you, put a spike in it, Jesus. Nail it to the cross. We won't take it home with us tonight. You've been too good to us for us not to appreciate what you've done. We love you. Thank you for grace. In Jesus' name, amen.